Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ellie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, so my name's Ellie Domit. I'm based at King's College London, um, which is one of the big London universities. And normally when I'm in my office, I come out and see the, the view of the Shard, which is shown on the background. Unfortunately, being London, um, the sky is very rarely blue. It's mainly grey um, for, I would say, 99% of the year. Um, when, uh, the, when I'm down there, what I'm doing is I'm doing research into ADHD. So I head up the ADHD research lab. Um, based at the guys campus of the university. So there's lots of people doing uh, research around ADHD um, and my part's based at guys campus, which is one of the hospital campuses. Um, and I've got a particular interest in non-pharmacological treatments for ADHD. So I actually, my background was originally psychology and then neuroscience and I sort of merged the two. So I started off doing investigations into how drugs like amphetamine might work for the condition. Um, and then I've moved into focusing on other types of treatments that may be used alongside medication, but could potentially be helpful on their own. How, so how did you get started looking into ADHD? Like, was it as did someone approach you about maybe a research project or something like that? Because I've noticed a lot of people seem either willing or open to talking about ADHD, or they're kind of like hesitant a little bit based on either past notions of it not really being recognized for so long. Yeah, so actually when I started um, researching into ADHD, it was sort of a bit of an accident. So I originally started my doctoral research, which is, is now going back 20-ish years. Um, when I originally did that, I was actually focusing or meant to be focusing on addictive substances. So I started looking at um, drugs like amphetamine. I was meant to be doing some work around uh, cocaine as well. And then that project has sort of almost as soon as it began it morphed into something else where I was actually just looking at the role of dopamine within the brain so one of the chemical messengers within the brain um and after I finished my PhD I went off to work at Oxford University and I started looking at something slightly different and then sort of unintentionally <laughs> drifted into ADHD research um and then from there on it it became a more um an intentional area of interest and i think given i started in this in this field started looking at dopamine sort of 20 odd years ago and then um i think first published in in adhd research coming up 15 years ago it was very much um less acknowledged there was a lot less awareness of it then um, and actually one of the things that's um it's not unique to our research but it's one of our, our more unique features is that we focus on adults with ADHD because there is so much um, research out there around children of course that research is important it has to keep keep going on um, but in more recent years there's been sort of recognition that first of all obviously kids with ADHD grow up and they don't always uh, grow out of their symptoms as had been originally thought around two-thirds will continue to have symptoms as, as adults but there's also some indication, and it's it's not um, a consensus by any means, but there's some indication that people can be first diagnosed as adults. So they wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria necessarily as a child, um, but they, they would as an adult. And then you've got a sort of murkier ground in the middle where perhaps somebody would meet the criteria as a child, but for whatever reason, they never receive a diagnosis. And they only receive that diagnosis later on in life. And what... We have certainly in the UK as a situation, um, unfortunately, where there are very long waiting lists for assessments for ADHD um, through our health service. And that means that a lot of adults go for a very long time without having a diagnosis, never without being able to have appropriate adjustments made in the workplace or in study if they're, they're at university. Um, but also without access to any treatment or support unless they can access that um, through private means. So you couldn't access the medication necessarily through paying, even if, uh, without a diagnosis, but people might decide to try psychological therapies, for example, um, and pay for that without a diagnosis. So there was a sort of gap, and it, it felt to me that that gap, which as, as the longer I was working in the area, the more evident that gap seemed to be becoming as we were really acknowledging adults with ADHD are a significant group of people and in many cases they have a lot of unmet needs by the current understandings of the science but also the health systems. 
I think the childhood ADHD thing is really important, but I also think it equally as important, if not a little bit more on my scale is the adult side of things only because I think obviously when I was a child, I was hyperactive. I'm still hyperactive, very hyperactive. Uh, but I found ways as an adult that I've kind of learned through growing up of finding ways to manage it or mask it a little bit. So it's not as much as a problem with my movements and kind of physical attributes. Now it's all the emotional stuff that starts rolling in, which is why I say it's a little bit more important when you're an adult and bills come into the picture and a lot of other adult problems start coming into the picture, things you don't worry about when you're a kid. The emotional management is one of the most difficult things, which is interesting because you talked about non-pharmacological treatments. Now, I'm not against medication at all. I'm just looking for also other ways that, because there are some people that do not want to use medications. I'm one of those people who don't, it's not that I have a mistrust towards medication. I mean, I'll take it if it's like, really, I'm at a point where I should, but I also want to try and find ways if it's a part of me to make it work with me or have it become something that could be my benefit. Cause I think you can turn some of your weaknesses into your strongest strengths. So the non-pharmacological stance, I mean, do you have, the same kind of opinion with medication on when it comes to like, obviously we know stuff that works or alternative treatments. I just like looking at other stuff. I mean, cardio, like I said, it's a great, it's a great benefit. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why medication might not be appropriate for people as well. Um, if you look at, you know, with, with children, so again, guidance varies by country, but young children, you wouldn't necessarily um, medicate young children as a first port of call. So with um, much younger children in the UK, we have um, a system where the first approach would be um, parent training or, or child kind of, um, not therapy, but support and, and giving them tools to work with um, what they need to do. Um, and it's only if that and some other environmental modifications, and I'll, I'll come back to what that might be in a minute relating to your cardio point, if that kind of thing doesn't work, that a child might then be prescribed medication. Interestingly for adults, you know, giving um, a 23-year-old with ADHD, asking their parents to do some training probably won't do much good for them. So those training options, some of the earlier options are sort of taken out in, in our system. Um, and the first option for adults with ADHD um, in the UK is medication. Um, and that's that's fine for the many that wish to take medication, but there'll be some that don't want to just because they don't want to, and that's okay. There'll be others that can't because they, it may be contraindicated with other health conditions, for example, so they can't take it. And the thing about medication, I think this is a really important thing because you know, we've seen a lot, and I think it's been global coverage of this medication. You know, is is are we prescribing it too much? Is ADHD being overdiagnosed? Are these drugs safe? Important questions that we must be asking. But one thing is that these medications, even when they work, they're not a, a silver bullet. So if I were to take um, Adderall for ADHD, so it's amphetamine, one of the most prescribed drugs, um, while the Adderall is in my system, I may see a reduction in my symptoms. And I'm highly unlikely to see those symptoms disappear completely. They'll be reduced. And that's what's happening about 80% of people that take them, the symptoms are reduced. For some people, that symptom reduction is as little as 30%. So they still have 70% residual symptoms. Um, so the drugs only work while they're in your system. So you have to kind of commit to taking them every day normally once a day, obviously as, as drug treatments are developed, they, they typically try and get longer lasting ones. So where you might've had to take um, a medication once every four hours, uh, 10 years ago, maybe now it's just once a day because the preparations last longer with different formulations. But these drugs, they only work while they're in your system. And there may be plenty of reasons why you wouldn't want them or couldn't have them in your system. So even when we've got effective drugs, we, you know, for, for really effective treatment of any condition, uh, physical health, mental health condition, anything, it's important to keep looking at what's, what options there are. And some of those may be non-pharmacological. Um, and you mentioned cardio there. And there is, so within our guidelines in, in the UK, and I think it's, it's uh, worldwide, there is this idea that exercise may be beneficial. And interestingly, that could be considered an environmental modification. So for a child, um, environmental modifications might take the form of slight changes in um, bedtime arrangements um, or nighttime routines. It could be changes in diet. There's not a huge amount of scientific evidence to support that at this stage. 
Um, certainly, it doesn't look like a particular diet causes ADHD symptoms. It may be that certain diets exacerbate them a little bit. So you might change the diet um, slightly. I'd be lying if I said after a box of cinnamon toast crunch, I didn't get a little bit of an energy kick there. And and that's that's exactly what it is. So there is some evidence saying saying high sugar uh, intake can exacerbate the symptoms, but not cause them. So it doesn't look like. Um, you know, it's it's not a case of oh, ADHD is caused by a poor diet or something. It's it's definitely not anything that that simple. Um, but there is this idea that exercise might be helpful. Unfortunately, I think with all of these things, um, there's not a huge amount of really robust evidence around what type of exercise. You know, if I say to somebody, as in fact, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. Um, you know, how, how much, how physically active are you? Someone would say, oh, I'm, I'm always on the go. I'm always doing loads of exercise. And you ask them what that means. And actually, when you look, one person's take of what being physically active and exercise is, is quite different to another person's. So it's really hard for us to tell exactly what kind of exercise might be helpful from kind of that anecdotal perspective. And in terms of a research um, perspective, studies have been done, but they're often poorly controlled studies. You can't really um, blind or mask your participants to the type of exercise they're doing. They know. So it's hard for you to say, well, those effects were definitely due to the fact that it was cycling rather than the fact that the people knew they were doing something that was quite physically strenuous as opposed to some stretching exercises, for example. So there is a lack of robust evidence, but it does appear as though exercise can be beneficial. The other challenge is when we say, well, beneficial to who? Um, one person with ADHD may have a completely different set of symptoms to another person with ADHD. And we're not in a position yet where we know if exercise is beneficial to everybody for all types of symptoms. So if a, a study that we've relatively recently published um, found that yoga was beneficial in reducing temporal impulsivity, which is basically that idea of will you wait for something that's bigger and better rather than have an immediate reward. So I always say it's a bit like you can have one Mars bar now or you can wait half an hour and you can have three. And um, ideally, you well, I mean, maybe not ideally for blood sugar or obesity. Take the one, it's okay, like, just oh, take the one. You'd wait for the three. And most people will especially young children and people who are impulsive will take the one. Um, and you can reduce the likelihood of them making an impulsive choice with 10 minutes of yoga, um, which is, uh, is quite, sorry, that's cognitive impulsivity. And so that, that's something that, um, so yeah, sorry, I meant temporal impulsivity. So it's, it's the same thing, relating, waiting for a bigger reward. Um, but that's yoga, but that was in a group of adults. And we just looked at their overall ADHD symptoms. And ADHD, as, as you're probably aware, can be uh, divided into different subtypes. So you can have somebody who is predominantly inattentive. So they may have very few or no hyperactive impulsive symptoms. Or you can have someone that's the other way. So they've got lots of hyperactive impulsive symptoms, but no inattentive symptoms, which is always seems a bit weird. How can you have ADHD with no inattention? Um, but you can actually. And then the most common type is a mixture of both. So we think exercise is beneficial, but we don't know exactly for whom and what format that exercise should take. Um, we've done some other work, which taps into what, what you mentioned there around cardio as well. And, and what, so that the study that I've just mentioned around looking at temp, sorry, temporal impulsivity and how yoga helped that, that was a, a randomized controlled trial. So come into the lab, do some tests, um, do some cycling or some yoga, do the same tests again. It's a very acute study, lots of room to uh, explore that further to get more definitive results. But the other work we've done is simply talking to people with ADHD, but in a, in a structured research way. And we find that people with ADHD can tell us different stories about their exercise. So we did something that's called narrative interviewing which is really kind of where you do ask people about their journey, their story, um, a little bit about their history with a particular thing. So in this case, we were asking about the history with exercise. And these were people with, with ADHD. And we found that um, there was an element of almost self-medicating 
but with exercise. So I exercise to manage my symptoms. I exercise to manage my ADHD. That was quite a common theme that came out of the interviews. We also found that people used exercise to create goals and targets that they, they could then work towards. So they would, you know, set a, I want to be able to, I don't know, run a 5K in a set time, lift a certain amount of weights. And then they would use that goal to structure their activities. Um, what we also found, which I don't think is particularly surprising, and I suspect it's not that unique to ADHD, is that people had a very roller coaster journey with exercise. They go all in, then they'd sit on the sofa for three months, then they go all in again. And and but I don't think that's unusual. Um, you know, people people do that with exercise. We see that, you know, it's like that January 1st, everybody gets in the gym and they go for it, and then by the start of February they're just paying for a membership for something they never use so we do see fluctuations in how people exercise but with ADHD people report it as being really helpful the people that are reporting like do they know specifically what symptoms they have like could you do targeted things like you were mentioning with yoga I would have to think that things like that would help more with like patients and kind of more probably emotional things as much as working out could help with emotional stuff but if you have hyperactivity cardio and things that would be kind of burning off that energy seems like the way to go for me but also people that i have friends that have like like my buddy i mentioned earlier has adhd he's a trainer aggression issues not like to the point where he's going to snap on everybody but he recognizes it but he gets the best benefit from hardcore weightlifting or things that can really get like i don't it's it's like we're all working out but there's just those different varieties so i'm curious if you can get it to a point where you, if you understand someone's symptoms or the subtype of adhd that they have you can give them a preferred working out plan and that might coach them or help them out in such a way to be able to manage their symptoms i didn't even know i was managing my symptoms until relatively recently. I mean, I used to drink like 12 energy drinks a day. No, that's not joking. Just because caffeine doesn't hit me like it does for normal people. Cut it back to two because I realized when my chest got really tight on the elliptical, I'm, I don't want to have a heart attack at like 26. But I started to realize I was kind of giving stimulants to my body that was kind of managing my ADHD in a sense. But back to what you were saying in the very beginning when you mentioned kind of like these not taking a pill, like you have to take it routinely every single day. I realized that when I took a pill for ADHD, I actually got no interest to want to work out anymore. Like there was no compulsivity to go. There was no, I need this. I need this feeling. It was kind of a lack of interest everywhere. And that's kind of what deterred me from the medication and made me want to stick on the more, I would say a healthier path for me, which was the working out and kind of keeping up this physical goal setting and trying my best to move forward without, because I mean, I can work out every day. doesn't seem as bad, but taking a pill every day to me just seems a little bit like, oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things to pick up on there. So first of all, this idea of, can we almost personalize a, an exercise program to some of these symptoms of ADHD? I think it would be absolutely brilliant if we can do that. We haven't got the research evidence base for that yet. Um, so I think typically the, the challenge there is that people's ADHD may, may change slightly as well. So somebody that perhaps is diagnosed as a child may be very hyperactive, that hyperactivity um, could taper right down and they could continue to have ADHD, but the symptom profile has changed. Um, so what might work for 12-year-old person A won't work for 15-year-old person A, and it may fluctuate. We know... Um, for example, in, in women um, or in girls, the symptoms of ADHD can, can alter a little bit, certainly in their severity around um, the menstrual cycle. So what works at one time of the month might not work at another. I think what would be great, and said so we're not there yet, but if you could almost say to somebody, you, you could almost, I mean, it would be a dream if you could have an app that said, you know, tell us if symptoms today or how which is the biggest issue for you today is it this is this and they tick and it says we recommend you do x um and that would you know so if it was if somebody was very impulsive it recommends yoga if somebody was feeling very hyperactive it says oh get on the exercise bike do half an hour at this intensity or, or something like that i mean that would be a kind of dream approach um we don't have the evidence base for that yet i think that's a long way off the other challenge which um, relates to the example you gave about sort of issues with aggression. Um, ADHD is rarely found on its own. 
Um, when it, within adult populations, it's most common to find it alongside depression or anxiety. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, one of the sort of obvious possible reasons is you've spent so long trying to get a diagnosis of ADHD and understand yourself that that's had an impact on your mood and your emotions. Um, but we don't really know why, why they are so commonly found together. So we talk about them being comorbid or co-occurring. Um, issues around aggression are often co-occurring as well. And although emotional dysregulation is not a required feature to be diagnosed with ADHD, um, some would argue that actually it sort of is. And, and historically, way back in, in the history of ADHD, emotional dysregulation was a little bit more prominent in diagnosis. Um, and then you come across this challenge is, is the exercise good for the ADHD or is it good for the other stuff that's commonly found alongside ADHD? So there's a fair amount, and we've done some research on this as well, around mindfulness. Mindfulness practice does appear to have some benefits in ADHD, but when you look at the measures being taken in these studies, it's quite possible that it's actually having benefits to somebody's emotional dysregulation, their depression, their anxiety, and through that, it's making them feel better. They may be just as inattentive or just as hyperactive, but they're managing it all better because they're no longer as depressed um, or they're able to regulate their emotional responses. So one thing we have to think about with ADHD, and, and it sort of goes against everything scientists like to do. You know, scientists like something neat and clear cut. We're going to take that person there. I'm going to put them in that box. I'm going to take that person, put them in that box. But the reality is that somebody with ADHD may have depression, anxiety, um, conduct disorder, autism, autism, autistic spectrum conditions alongside the ADHD. So it's quite challenging to be able to get a personalized approach when everybody's so different. And then I think just picking up on the point you made about um, kind of compulsive exercise and how medication stopped you wanting to do that. Um, this just reminded me as you spoke about it about the relationship between ADHD and addictions and this is a really interesting one and one I think we are so far off fully understanding so we know that people with ADHD one of the most common co-occurring conditions is substance use disorder so ad addictions to, to drugs um, and I think alcohol pops up as well but most of the work is around substance use disorder so then you think well okay um, but that's not this, you know, that is an example of a compulsive behavior. Um, what about exercise? Exercise addiction is that thing. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but there is a pretty good amount of evidence that sometimes exercise can appear very similar to other addictions. There's only currently one behavioral addiction recognized in the DSM, which is our Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for um, Diagnosing Conditions. And that's gambling. Um, but what we do know is that people with ADHD, um, as I said, are more, they, they are more likely to have comorbid or co-occurring substance use disorders. They may also be more likely to have gambling difficulties. And then we come into the issue of the medication that you mentioned. Um, one of the theories with this was that, well, you know, you're giving these people amphetamine, you're kind of priming their brains for addiction. That was the one of the early theories. But the clinical data actually suggested that it was unmedicated people with ADHD were more likely to get addictions. Medicated were less likely. And I think that taps into a little bit of what you just said there. And we did some research, uh, uh, albeit in a, in a model, not, a person, not people with ADHD. We did some research that kind of backed this up that actually maybe that medication reduces drive for behaviors um, and as you said it made you less inclined to go and exercise and you wanted to go and exercise and that's the reason why you might not take the medication um, so it could be that actually yes you're right one of the downsides of taking medication could be a reduction in certain types of behaviors um, that are or could be considered compulsive but not necessarily bad because i think we we don't necessarily view exercise as a as a bad thing. Um, exercise addiction can re result in problems, um, you know, lots, lots of re particularly repetitive strain injury type 
problems and joint problems but you really have to be going some to to develop those and for most people who are exercising even exercising daily um it wouldn't be an issue six and hours of cardio is kind of touching that boundary line i've noticed it a couple of times i'll get up out of bed and my knees will do a click and i'm like you know what this is not going to be good when i'm like 30 even my buddy who's a trainer goes man that's going to hit you hard when you get older i was like i hope not because i've been doing this for a long time yeah i think but i think you're right and we actually looked at so we did a, a, a survey with with people with adhd um because we'd found in some previous survey work that actually some people with adhd were more likely to experience exercise addiction components so they were more likely to fall into a slightly higher risk category than those without adhd and they were more likely to experience higher levels of withdrawal from exercise and um fixation on exercise than those without adhd and so then our, our kind of further thinking was well we wanted to sort of try and replicate that see if that finding would be replicated in a different sample but also see if people with ADHD were more likely to uh, encounter overuse injuries, which are really common, um, commonly related to exercise and sports. And so we did a, a study on it, a few hundred people, reasonable size sample, and we replicated what we found before in the sense that people did seem to be scoring higher on the exercise dependency scales, but they weren't more likely to suffer from overuse injuries just because they had ADHD or had symptoms of ADHD. So I, I think these things come with, you know, just like one person might exercise to the point of injury and another person won't. It's individual variation, of course. Um, but there is that risk with exercise and ADHD, just in the same way there could be a risk with another potentially compulsive behavior. And that risk is likely to be mitigated for the vast majority of people. I would think it'd um, be pretty rare. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, unless obviously if you if you work, uh, in exercise, which some people will do, or if you have the ability to have access to exercise facilities, or perhaps you're a kind of low facility exerciser like like a runner, um, then you it's sort of more possible that you could exercise to a level of, of detriment. But most adults in particular, yes, they might go and exercise, but they've also got to go and do paid work to pay the bills, go and study, go and look after family so there is a sort of limited amount of time in a way there's a sort of natural limit on some people's exercising behaviors um but compulsivity and exercise and adhd is an, is an interesting area we're currently well we're still looking into it in our lab i um like i said i work in a gym facility i work in the fitness industry um front desk i'm not like a personal trainer or anything um but the way my hours are set up i'm at like the gym from 1 a.m till like either 11 or 12 in the afternoon. So then I, you can work out after, or you can work out before I choose to work out before I clock in. Cause it's just going to customer service. So I definitely need that before I start talking with people. Um, but I, when I graduated high school, I didn't have a job during winter. And so I was just working out twice a day. I got into like 3% body fat. I mean, competition shape. And I notice it now when there's a couple people that work at the gym that have maybe one one day a week or something like that they don't have another job because they're either fresh out of high school or something they're working out twice a day and working out for hours and doing excessive amounts of stuff you can do that at that point and i think that everyone's kind of susceptible to overworking out especially in the beginning because you realize that there's this benefit that you do get from it but adhd i definitely think is more up on the scale of becoming more addicted to it but the damaging part is i don't think mostly I'd be worried about concerned about people in their thirties or forties that would be maybe working out at that level. But I do not see that at least through my whole work career or anything like that. I've never come across anybody that is above that age that has that super, even what I do is technically not considered the compulsivity part. Cause I'm so adjusted to it now for me personally, maybe to someone else that might freak them out. But when you see like Ronnie Coleman, if you know who that is, he was a world professional Mr. Olympia eight times. So if you see pictures of him, this guy was like 1% body fat at like 275 pounds, world's strongest man and all that. Look at photos and videos of him now. He needs crutches for his arms. He has to walk like, and his legs are completely atrophied. It's because, I mean, I don't say he has ADHD, but that is compulsive working out, like putting every single weight on the bar, which I don't think 
think the general public really has to worry about because I don't see anybody doing, you know, massive amounts of lifts. But to me, this is a lot better than alcohol, which is something that is more accessible to a lot of people. And it's more addicting. I mean, I drink on weekends and I have a drink sometimes like during the week or something. I notice it. It's definitely like the immediate effect of relief from some of the ADHD stuff or some of the overthinking and all that, where I go, this is dangerous, but I'm also self-aware about it. A lot of people don't, and a lot of people don't know about working out. A lot of people work a nine to five or they work 12 hours a day, and then they go home and they just want to have a little drink, and that little drink becomes one, two, three, four. I went to school for chemical dependency, so that's an area of concern for me is the addiction aspect to it, but working out, I feel like should be a more suggested method or it's a, it's a better form, I would say. So that's why I really appreciate the work that you're doing as well, yeah. too. I mean, I think, I think you're, you know, the key to, and it's, just, I think it's a famous quote. I can't remember who said it originally, but everything in moderation, including moderation, you know, it, it, having a, a drink to wind down at the end of a week or, you know, occasionally going out sort of for a, a big night out, that's, that's fine. And, um, you know, the same with exercise, pushing yourself to a certain level for a certain event or for a certain target, and then perhaps having a rest week and then going back and, and where different people's baselines are will, will vary hugely. I think we need to better understand um, the both the long and short term effects of exercise on cognition, um, on emotional regulation. One of the things that we see talked about sort of very quite a lot in the in the you know general media things like the runner's high um and i think for anybody that runs or actually does any kind of intense cardio because it's not just running that that's a very real thing i mean we we probably couldn't describe it in particularly coherent terms and everybody might describe it slightly differently but i think we'd all agree it's a thing um and that's fine, but when that thing can't be done anymore, for whatever reason, that's when we open ourselves up to difficulties. And that was another thing that emerged from our interviews with people with ADHD, that it, the challenges in particular arose if people did encounter injuries because they knew, um, you know, and sometimes it was the kind of injury you can't go for a run with a broken leg, so they couldn't run. But other times it might have been a an injury that technically they could have exercised with, but it was advised they didn't, so they didn't. But then they encountered a kind of emotional downturn and their symptoms became difficult. Um, and that may have been partly a withdrawal from exercise. I think we all feel um, if our routine is, is upset and we like our routine, then we can all feel a bit down about it, irrespective of injuries or ADHD. Um, so I think it's, it is better understanding it. Um, one of the reasons that I originally ran the, the trial on exercise was it occurred to me, um, so in, in the UK, you can get subsidized gym membership if you have certain physical health conditions. And I thought that's that's great because, um, and in, in fact, my dad had one of these health conditions and so he gets subsidized and he, do, he, does, he doesn't use it, but he does, he does get a subsidized gym membership if he wants to use it and that's fantastic. Um, and I thought he's retired. Um, you know, gym memberships are expensive. It's really good that that is available to people. But one thing that struck me was that it's not available to people where the condition is labeled about mental health. And I think there are several reasons for that. One is this, this evidence base. So that was part of the reason I wanted to do a, a clinical trial in the first place, because I thought if we actually have evidence that exercise helps in, for people with ADHD, Obviously, one study wouldn't be enough, but as the evidence builds up and builds up, we might get to a position where somebody with ADHD is offered subsidized gym membership, just as somebody with, I don't know, diabetes or heart disease or whatever it is that they're currently offered this subsidized membership for. And with ADHD, it struck me as more important because all the literature, all of it, shows that people with ADHD have lower occupational status on average than those without. So of course, not all of them will, but what we see with lower occupational status is nearly always lower income. And so the people that really need a gym membership may not have the money to pay for a gym membership. And this is the same for other conditions like depression as well. You know, if you are severely depressed, you may be out of work. And there is a good amount of evidence with depression that exercise is beneficial, but no subsidized gym membership. Um, so I think there's, so part of the, the, the drive for me as well is, is to actually, it's not just to check these treatments work, if they do work and, and treatments in a loose term there, because exercise 
I think is it's it sounds weird when you call it a treatment, but you know, if, if exercise is beneficial, we want to be in a position where it becomes available to people irrespective of if they can afford it. Um, and that's that's really important because you know it's all very well saying, well, you can go for a run or you can go for a walk. But again, not everybody lives in an area where they feel safe going out for a run or a walk by themselves to get exercise. And they may also feel that they need specialist guidance through coaches, personal trainers, or access to other kinds of facilities that they, they can't get easily. So I think there's lots of issues around it. And I think we need to keep doing as much research as we can to get to a point that if it looks like it works, we make sure it's as, as available to people as possible. The occupational thing that I mean, I've noticed that that a lot of people like that would qualify for ADHD. They kind of like my buddy. He's a personal trainer. Me, I'm not fit for a behind the desk type thing. Besides when I'm doing this, it's a little bit different. But like the nine to five, like, you know, suit and tie type thing. I just don't have that in me. I mean, maybe it's part of my personality as well, too. But I've started to notice that like when they if you look up jobs for ADHD, a lot of stuff is like either it's like law enforcement, it's athletics. It's something that usually involves some type of movement or some type of thing that's kind of a different action than uh, business or some people are. I have a buddy who's an accountant who has ADHD, so that's amazing for him to be able to do. But he's also so like a manager of a bank. So it's like being able to like walk around and do all this other stuff while also working with numbers is completely different than, you know, sitting behind and just working and typing all day, which just seems might be someone's bread and butter. It's not mine. So when we talk about ADHD, you've mentioned this a couple of times, you've mentioned that not, like the funding for studies, is that because a lot of the studies that are being funded for like medications or things of that sort, are they done by the pharmaceutical companies to fund those studies? And nobody's really interested in learning about maybe a non-profitable way. I mean, I hate to say it like that because it makes it sound dark and gloomy, but I don't see anybody researching diets or things of that sort besides independent researchers, but you guys still need funding for your research. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's like all of these things that somebody's got to pay for it somewhere and research, whether it's done by private companies or at universities, still needs paying for and it is very costly. Um, at the moment, we're at a really interesting position with ADHD. So the, the mainstay treatments that are used across the world are amphetamine and methylphenidate based drugs. That hasn't changed in the, in the last few decades, um, longer really. The formulations have changed, so we've created longer acting versions, as I mentioned earlier, but the, the drugs are the same. Um, and what's really kind of underpinning that is they work, and they work pretty well, or they work as well as we can hope. We haven't found anything that works better. So in terms of developing new treatments, we, you know, the treatments we have are as, as good as they're possibly going to get for ADHD. We have now developed some non-stimulant medications, things like atomoxetine-based drugs. Um, and so that work initially, of course, would have been um, funded through various means, including pharmaceutical companies. But one thing that is a bit troubling about all of that, so the drugs are pretty successful in terms of you know, treating a mental health condition, which ADHD can be classified as, is we don't really know why they're successful which sounds a bit silly. Um, we don't know what's different in the brains with ADHD. So we know there are differences. We can say, oh, well, activity in this area is a bit higher. This chemical messenger is a bit lower here. It's a bit higher here. This one's slightly different. But we haven't got a full understanding of how all that comes together to create symptoms of a particular type. So without having that full understanding, it's really difficult to work out where to target your approaches for new uh, new treatments. You know, if we knew that actually there's all these changes in the brain, but it was that one change that was the important one, then we target our treatments there. The problem is we don't have that information. So the drugs that worked for decades and decades predominantly targeted the chemical messenger dopamine. Um, the newer drugs target noradrenaline. They both work. Um, they often both work in the same people, but typically you'd start off with um, a dopamine acting drug and then switch to a noradrenaline specific one afterwards or norepinephrine. Um, so that makes it hard to justify saying, well, I'm going to try this because we don't really know what it's targeting. Exercise has actually fared better than other ones because there are some known similarities between the changes in the brain in exercise and with 
medications. Um, now, one of the challenges, of course, is how you measure these changes in the brain. Um, and a lot of work, all preclinical work, so sorry, all work to test new drugs, obviously, legally has to take place in animals before it can take place in humans for safety reasons. Um, and you can actually get animals to exercise. You can't get an animal to sit there and do some meditation or yoga. Although there are some odd stretching exercises you can do with them, but I've, I've, heard, I've read about them. I'm not convinced by them, but you can get them to do cardio exercise because you get little treadmills for rodents and little running wheels. Um, so you can actually do some really tightly controlled preclinical work with exercise and there are ADHD animal models. So exercise has actually had a reasonable amount of research attention. Um, and then in the UK, at least it's funded research into it is funded by the same funding bodies that will fund research into drug treatments. Where it becomes messier is things like mindfulness or um, dietary modifications. You know, you, it, it's quite easy to say to somebody, uh, you know, as part of this exercise program, I want you to do uh, three times a week this program and monitor if they've done it. You know, we've got loads of, I've got one on now, we've got loads of devices that measure our physical activity. It's quite difficult to control everybody's diet to the need, to the amount necessary to put in small changes. Again, you can do it in animal studies, but that's very different. You know, your average lab rat diet is very samey. The average human diet, I think, is much more diverse. So some of these more um, alternative, and I, uh, treatments like dietary ones or stress um, tackling ones like mindfulness and meditation um, are very hard to control and if you can't control the study you can't be absolutely 100% certain of your findings and research funding is limited so they want to fund stuff that can be very carefully controlled and instead exercise has actually fared better than some of the other studies. Um, there has been stuff on diet a fair amount um, mainly on children though not on adults, but ADHD. Do they think that it may be early intervention with diet could possibly help with adult ADHD? I'm like, I'm surprised. I mean, I don't know how the people you interviewed, the number of people were willing to talk about it as open. I'm seeing a lot more people that are open about talking about it, but also I know a lot of adults that just have learned to mask it or totally just completely ignore some of the stuff, whether that's growing out of it or whatever they consider that growing out of it. Um, I just, I don't know. Cause also you're moving around as an adult. It's a lot harder to be able to be point at that person. Like that person is definitely ADHD. You can do that with a kid, but it's also, that brings up the question, are they just not a kid running around or something like that? I mean, kids have lots of energy, but I think you notice certain things, especially in a set and setting um, classroom, something of that sort. Yeah. So with, with, well, I mean, in, in adults and children, you, you would want to see, the symptoms of ADHD in more than one setting. So one of the early ideas around ADHD was that it was just badly behaved kids. The problem was, you know, these kids were just bad. Um, and that, you know, that idea is very outdated. Um, and, and one of the reasons I don't think that was ever a, a good idea in the first place was that they had to exhibit symptoms in more than one location. So you could have a child that was badly behaved at home but perfect at school and if they were only showing symptoms at home that would suggest it was something about the home environment rather than the child and vice versa and so to have a diagnosis of ADHD um, as a child you have to be exhibiting difficulties the symptoms in more than one setting so it kind of rules out there being a, a, an awkwardness in one location it also has to result in significant functional impairment and it has to be developmentally inappropriate. As you say, all kids run around, all kids have loads of energy. The difference is, is that one child running around at the age when everyone else is sat down. Um, so it's about looking for developmental appropriateness of the behavior. It's, it's also about the setting. And I think with adults with ADHD, you mentioned masking a couple of times and, and about willingness to talk about ADHD. What we've seen, I think, in the last 10 years, and I think this is a brilliant thing. I mean, it's brilliant from my perspective as a researcher because people are willing to participate in studies. But I also just think it's a brilliant thing. Um, we're starting to see this neurodiversity movement come forward. Um, 
some people with ADHD will not like the idea that ADHD is a mental health condition it can be diagnosed using particular tools. Um, and I, I understand that they would prefer to view themselves as different, not in need of fixing. And I think that's important. Um, one of the things that I um, particularly, it's, it's sort of, it, you can't really advocate for it in, in research, but one thing I'm particularly passionate about is that at no point should anyone be told they should have medication for their ADHD or they should do X for their ADHD. But actually what they should have the opportunity for is to be shown a set of things, whether that's medication, exercise or whatever, that may help them manage the elements of their ADHD they would like to manage. And the reason I say that is because, you know, there is some suggestion that all forms of neurodiversity, not just ADHD, have some strengths. This isn't all about, you know, that's wrong with you, that's wrong with you, that's wrong with you. Actually, people with ADHD show amazing hyper-focus when they want to, um, by which I mean when something engages them, they can sit and do it for hours. Um, and, you know, there is a suggestion that some forms of neurodiversity are, are associated with heightened creativity. Um, and we touched on occupations earlier, and there are some occupations, I think it's difficult to know, you know, are, are people with ADHD more commonly found in this industry because it's neurodivergent friendly, or is it because they are literally the kind of people that are attracted to that, or they've got these skills in this area. Um, there were some famous studies a few years ago around London taxi drivers. So if you ever go to London, you get in a black cab and you ask London taxi drivers anything, they is seem this to about be the a, navigation part with the yeah. roads. Yeah. And, and what they found was that, London taxi drivers have bigger hippocampuses than non-taxi drivers. Um, and the hippocampus is a spatial navigation bit in the brain. And that then begged the question is, did their hippocampuses get bigger uh, when they became taxi drivers? Or is it that people with a big hippocampus end up deciding to be <laughs> a taxi driver? So they, they had to do some other studies to find out the answer to that question. But the idea is that, you know, some people with ADHD will have particular skills and talents, or they will find particular roles or positions that suit them. Um, whether they have to mask any symptoms to achieve that or whether they just find something that naturally lets them be moving around rather than sat at a desk if that's what they want to do. Um, so I think it's, it's about recognizing that this is a diversity and not necessarily a problem, but also saying to, to somebody, you know, if I want, tell me about your neurodiversity. And when you start to do that, people do want to talk about it in a way that 10 years ago, before the neurodiversity movement really took off, you know, it was you hid the fact you were autistic or you hid the fact you had ADHD. You certainly wouldn't mention it at job interview. Whereas now you can tick a box on most forms that says, you know, I need reasonable adjustments or and, and it's not necessarily something that should be hidden. And in, in some spaces, it could potentially offer considerable advantage. Um, so I, I think, yeah, people are a lot more willing to talk about it now. And I think the neurodiversity movement has really helped with that. Um, and that includes adults, because years ago, you, you know, adults of my age would have been told to keep it quiet when they were a kid. It was a bad thing. Um, so if they had a diagnosis as a child, they would not, you know, it wouldn't necessarily have been something they'd feel comfortable talking about as an adult, but we're seeing a, a much greater awareness of the, the neurodivergent conditions. We're also seeing a greater acceptance that they come with strengths, not just weaknesses. Yeah, I know social media highlights a lot of the strengths as well, too. Some of them are considered superpowers. I kind of have a different opinion because you can't really put it to 100% science. Like I can't put the hyper focus thing into science, but when I do hyper focus, I'm also a bit of a perfectionist. So I will harper over something over and over until I get it. Like I'll get, I got really good at painting just from watching Bob Ross videos at one o'clock in the morning. Like I went from having no skill at all in it to just hyper focusing and watching nothing but Bob Ross and then creating these things. And now that like people, friends of mine that would never give me any compliments are holding pictures of mine in their house just because it's it the art surprisingly got good and i lost all interest in it and i gotta wait till that comes back around but then the justice sensitivity for me is an area i'm also starting to look more into because i always had this like i wouldn't say passion but like 
impulsivity and kind of like it would seem like I was a little bit like, why are you so aggressive right now? And it was because I would hear something and to me, it just felt wrong and like morally wrong. And that's the justice sensitivity aspect. And I don't think a lot of people even really know about that or why they feel that way, but that's would be considered an ADHD superpower as well too. But you got to trick us into stuff. I hate to say it like that, like we're children and we need like to be tricked, but in a lot of ways, if you just reframe the question or reframe the certain statement or thing you want us to do, we'll be more than happy to do it. But when you someone's telling someone to do something like you need to do this, most people like myself have heard that their whole entire life and have never listened since the beginning. So it's prime to find a different method of working with it. My boss does it. Um, she looks into all about ADHD and things of that sort. So she knows how to like work with me a little bit, but just suggest stuff or puts it in a different form. And I was like, hey, you'd have a lot more people being able to speak about it or want to speak about it or acknowledge that they have it and not push it down deep inside them. If you just flip the script a little bit, you know, kind of put the suggested methods out there. Yeah, and actually that ties into some uh, a wider movement in research. So I don't have ADHD, um, but I do my research on ADHD. So what that means is that I'm coming at everything, right, from planning the experiments, the documentation, how I write it all up. I'm coming at all of that from a neurotypical perspective. And it's important that I don't put, you know, I have to put my stamp as a scientist on it because I will have expertise in certain things. And that's why I'm doing the research, but I shouldn't be putting my neurotypical stamp on everything. And one of the ways that we work to avoid that, but it's a bigger movement in research, is we have research advisory boards. And those research advisory boards are groups of people who work with us who are neurodivergent and guide us through the different steps. So we will, um, in an ideal world, we'd start this process before we even had funding for research. Um, and sometimes we are able to do that. Other times we might get the funding in place and say, this is what we're setting out to do. This is our plans. Can you um, can you give us some feedback on these plans? And we, we've now got it you know, literally to the point of, can you look through these documents? Tell us what you would like to change. Could you come in? And they come into the lab and they do one of the tests for us and they say, actually, the way you described that wasn't very helpful. I didn't really understand or... It was, you know, we're in London, it's a big city. I found it really difficult to get to the venue. Could you just include a photo of which door I'm meant to go in in this massive university quad? That would be really helpful. So what we're then able to do is to work with people with ADHD to investigate ADHD. And it's not just it's not just ADHD. Some of our work's more broadly around neurodiversity. And I think that's, that's now a requirement of most of the UK funders. Um, they call it, so it's sort of, public and patient involvement or engagement. So getting the people that you're interested in doing research with involved right from the start. And those people won't then be your research participants, but they're of the same group. So one of our studies at the moment looks at neurodiversity in higher education um, and, and a particular cognitive load, so mental effort in learning online. And to put that study together, we have a research advisory board of about um, it's sort of rotating because we don't ask people to commit for too long, but around six to 10 students in the UK who are the body of students that, so they're in the population we're interested in, who are neurodivergent, who help us, they go through everything, they give us feedback, and actually some of them have co-authored the research publications that we've written at the end of the study. And that is really important, it is about framing things, and if we're always framing things from the perspective of a clinician or a researcher doing work on a group, we'll always miss people out. But if we start to work with a group rather than on a group, then we're far more likely to get people willing to talk to us um, because we're asking things the way they will understand. I mean, science, you know, research speak is a bit... Um, Want. Yeah, it's just, it's it's very, you know, we have to follow our ethics committee will say you need that statement about data protection, you need that statement. That's great. And we have to put all those things in for legal reasons. But we also need to make sure someone gets that far in the document. If that's on page six, and we could have said all this in two pages, and we're trying to attract people with ADHD. You know, there are all sorts of things we can improve. So working with 
groups with the population you're interested in is really important and that is happening across all funders are encouraging that all research groups and multiple conditions so you wouldn't now see a, a study a big study about treatment of any condition that hasn't had the patients with that condition involved i haven't really come across many research papers that have kind of like taken me back as like being offended for, for you know having adhd or anything but i have had one conversation with a top researcher in the field of adhd about it i don't know if he necessarily meant to say it this way but i had to kind of clarify on it which was that we're twice as more likely to get out of a car in a hostile situation and you know and, t and get into a fight um, I'll tell you his name after this. Uh, but when he said that, I was like, hey, be very careful with the way that we say things like that, because that's how people get locked up. And then I don't want to repeat like this whole like, oh, we're going to get all the ADHD people and put them back in asylums or something. Because, But that's also I mean, it comes from some person who might not have ADHD who's researching into it. I'm glad he's passionate about it. But at the same time, it's I don't know. I've had a different conversation. I think you really understand it. And I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk about it. But also when I talk to someone who has ADHD, it's it just it's different. And which is interesting. I didn't know that they were overlooking or at least going through some of the research studies that you guys are putting out there just to check to see if there's that's awesome. I mean, it explains why I haven't come across really any online that have really taken me back at all. But yeah, I mean, I like I said, I, I can't understand people's experiences either. You know, I can only understand the one that I experience. And it's hard because even with some people with ADHD, different subtypes. I don't know what they're experiencing on that one, but I can try and get to that level of understanding. I think there's a willingness to learn that's about really anybody if they took the time to do yeah. it and it, i think that that picks up on a on perhaps a a sort of nice all-encompassing point which is that another thing that's happening in research is to look at something called the intersectionality so that's the combination of characteristics someone might have so as a classic example here you know i am a white middle-class female with a psychology degree as a first degree <laughs> In the UK, there are thousands of me's walking around. My experience of my degree in psychology may be quite different to a male from a different ethnic group or somebody who was the first in their family to go to university. And that's just my experience of studying at university, which generally speaking, shouldn't be a particularly positive or negative experience. It's just a normal life stage for many people. And I think we're starting now to understand that one person's experience of a, an illness or a condition or, or a major life event will be very different to somebody else's experience. So you could have two people just to, picking up on a, on a kind of example around, you could have two people in a hostage situation, exactly the same situation, exactly the same threats to their life. Those people could come away with very different experiences of it because of their characteristics. And, you know, one thing we find with a lot of our ADHD research, um, now, historically, ADHD has been associated with boys, not girls. By the time you get to adulthood, the gender split is more equal. We really struggle to get males involved in our studies. We try everything. Um, and all our studies have a larger population of females than males. Now, that could be considered a limitation because it's not equal. On the other hand, there's not been really very much research into adult females with ADHD, so it could also be considered a strength. Um, it's, you know, we've got to make sure that we are sampling everybody and taking into account these characteristics. And that's really hard to do, just to get enough people to understand the impact of all the different characteristics. But I think you're absolutely right. You know, everybody's experience of something is slightly different. And we're not going to capture everybody's experience in a single study. I, I think I'll get to the end of a, I don't know, hopefully by the time I get to the end of it, 30, 40 year research career. And I might have just caused a tiny little chink in the amount of work that needs to be done and just a tiny bit of added understanding. Um, there is so much more to understand. And it's not just about ADHD, it's about everything and how, you know, how everybody's um, health experiences will differ according to their characteristics and their, their geography, you know, where in the, you know, they're in the US, are they in the UK, where are they? And how do all those factors interact? And, and I think we need to be sensitive to that. We need to recognize the limitations. If I do a study in London and it's not an online study that anyone anywhere in the world can do, I'm really only tapping into a certain population. I need to recognize that and I need to hope and, and support by really careful detailing of what I've done, the replication of that work elsewhere.
to see if it was a London thing or a broader thing. So we just need to we need to start to embrace the full details of of a of a person or a population and recognize the diversity in it, neurodiversity and general diversity. Well, Ellie, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links if you have any social media handles, Twitter, Instagram, and also your ADHD lab as well, too? Yeah, so the ADHD um, lab has a website, which is very easy to remember. It's just the ADHDresearchlab.com. And we have the same uh, um, tag on Instagram and Twitter, so just the ADHD Research Lab. Okay, and I'll link all those links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.